From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. This is your news for Monday, January 10th. A new study documents the rising mental health crisis in rural Western communities. Will Walkie from our partners at KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming, has more. Nearly half the respondents in the over 1,200-person survey say they were at least experiencing mild mental health problems in the first year of the pandemic. Plus, almost 15% are exhibiting symptoms of serious psychological distress, like extreme restlessness, worry, and hopelessness. Tom Miller is a professor at the University of Oklahoma and a co-author of the paper. Basically, these results, I think, serve as kind of a cry for attention when it comes to what appears to be very serious issues of um, psychological distress across the rural West. The survey polled from non-metropolitan areas in 11 Western states and also looked at how COVID-19 affected respondents' economic and physical well-beings. Miller hopes policymakers look at this data as an argument for increasing resources for mental health in the region. The average rate of psychological distress nationwide before the pandemic was just 3 to 5 percent, 10 percent lower than what this survey found. And there's a lot of places in overall in the rural West that are really struggling and have been for a while. And so I think that's another reason why we're seeing these mental health impacts. I mean, Even if this level of mental distress wasn't associated with COVID, it's still a huge problem. Over 13% of residents also said they were unemployed during the beginning of the pandemic. That's more than double the national average. But the authors say other sociological factors in the area, including social isolation and high cost of living, also could contribute to local mental health issues. I'm Will Walkie in Jackson, Wyoming. It's been over one year since the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. How is national polarization playing out in classrooms? Matt Hoish with KOTO in Telluride checked in with government teachers in western Colorado to see what it's been like teaching about our country in increasingly divided times. Samantha Jacobs has a standing policy in her classroom. We don't discuss politics. Jacobs is a social studies teacher in Norwood. This year, one of her classes is eighth grade civics. I just keep the political part out of the classroom because it's just too volatile for them to handle. But over the last few years, she says, that's gotten harder. It's just really challenging because when the government's polarized, it makes the students polarized. Kelly Boykin teaches government at Telluride High School. She agrees teaching government has changed over the last few years because society has changed and become more polarized. There's more areas for that dialogue. There's more areas where people are not necessarily going to see things in the same way. So that that, that has made it perhaps more challenging because you just have to kind of navigate that. Jacobs recalls when she started teaching over two decades ago, things were different. Political parties were very similar. Like there was almost no difference between a moderate liberal, liberal and a moderate conservative person. They literally had the same things that they wanted. Still, Boykin says when she does surveys with students for them to see where they fall on the political spectrum, they can be surprised. There's some kids that will think that they're very conservative and they'll take one of these surveys and they actually end up more in the middle or even more, you know, would be classified on the Democrat side. So shocked and just that they kind of have a preconceived idea of where they think they might be. Um, and then they really look at, start looking at some of these issues, and they don't always fall exactly what they thought they would. And Boykin adds, there are some positive changes. 
Students, she says, are more interested in civics. The kids want to know the foundations of government. They want to know what's in the Constitution. There's a real interest there. So it's a real learning opportunity. For her part, Jacobs is pessimistic polarization will decrease. She thinks it will only get worse. Students, I don't know if they're willing or able to learn how to learn their own voice. They're hearing so much of that rhetoric at home, but then they believe that that's the only way, and they're not willing to explore other options. Boykin feels differently. The kids, she says, make her hopeful. Because they they are passionate, and they are curious, and, and um, they are thoughtful, and I'm ready for them to get out there and, and start uh, figuring some of this stuff out. Because I think they're going to do a much better job than the, the current generation and, the, and previous generations, in all honesty. Time will tell how both of those predictions play out. But one thing is certain. Over the next few years, those students will grow up, start to vote, and play their parts in carrying the torch of American democracy forward wherever it's headed. I'm Matt Hoish. The Cocopa Indian tribe has lived along the Colorado River Delta in Arizona for centuries. But decades of drought and development have transformed this corner of the river. With our partners at KJZZ in Arizona, Elisa Resnick reports on an effort that aims to restore it. We're pulled off a dirt road in the West Cocopa Reservation, just south of the Morelos Dam in Yuma. A few yards away is the 30-foot steel bollard border wall built by the Trump administration. Water used to flow here across the border and all the way into the Sea of Cortez. More than a century ago, Cocopa pilots navigated steamboats across its fast-moving current. Now, there's a decent number of these little uh, tunnels, but they do change over time. That's Cocopa Cultural Resource Manager Justin Brunden. And the tunnels he's talking about are these makeshift trails etched into a thicket of pale green reeds that tower above our heads. These are Phragmites, an invasive species with thick tubes topped with sharp leaves. And they're taking over. We're forcing our way through them to reach the banks. This is the river that uh, cut the Grand Canyon. And at our current location, towards the end of the river, it is uh, about knee height. Brunden is a Cocopa tribal member whose family is from an area that is now Mexico. He says the Cocopa used this water to farm, fish, and hunt before a border existed. Now what's left is what Brunden says feels like the world's longest lake. So it's a completely different landscape. If, if you were to take one of our ancestors and bring them here today to stand on the banks of the river, they would not recognize it. The Colorado River supplies water to some 40 million people in the American West. Over the last half century, it's been dammed 15 times. On Cocopa land, Brendan says that's not only shrunk the river, it's also helped Phragmites thrive. The floodwaters would scalp the land and then deposit new soil. And so Phragmites would have to start from scratch. And now, because there's no more flooding, there's no more flood scarring, there's no more movement of the river, they just take a hold of the bank and they don't let go. Jen Allspock with the tribe's Environmental Protection Office says dams, drought, and climate change have decimated native species. Um, you know, this all would have been wild mesquite groves and, um, you know, teeming with wildlife. Um, and then, of course, the cottonwoods and willows that, you know, used to thrive along the river. 
that landscape isn't too distant a memory for Willadina Thomas. I remember it having water all in this area where we had, I mean, trees, I mean, like a forest of cottonwood. She's a tribal member who works with Allspock at the environmental office. She says Kokopa come here to be with the river and collect materials like strands of willow to make cradle boards. She came as a kid with her grandpa. She says he always warned her that one day all of this might be gone. And I never understood that until I came back out here and I saw what, you know, something that we had abundance of and now to see that we don't have it. You know, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's a long, simmering problem she and Allspock are trying to address. Like in what you're hearing from a video of the work being done here. They spent hours here and at another river access point further north, first using machetes and long shears, then heavy machinery to cut back Phragmites and stout tamarisks. Just off the river's banks, young cottonwood, mesquite, and willow trees thrive in the tribe's nursery. Like these cottonwoods, I want to show you those cottonwoods right there. I planted those um, four years ago. Thomas is surrounded by rows of tiny trees in plastic pots, saplings cut from more mature trees like the ones she planted or brought in from elsewhere in Arizona. They'll grow here until they're ready to be planted. The goal is to get back to some version of what Thomas remembers growing up. You know, after seeing all that hard work and seeing the growth, it was like, you know, like I said, it makes me proud to say, like, you know, we did this and it's coming back. This past spring, the environmental office cut back a few acres of Phragmites and the river was visible once again. But six months later, they all grew back. Crews are trying again with herbicide to prevent them from returning so quickly. It's hard work. But Thomas says this river is Kokopa's lifeblood. So they'll keep pushing forward as long as it takes. Elisa Resnick with our partners at KJZZ and their Tribal Natural Resources Desk. And that's the KZMU News for Monday, January 10th. Get your community-powered journalism Monday through Friday at noon and 7. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.